clubhouse. Happy birthday. Eat. I had too much uh, cake tonight. This is tradition. Papa? Carlo? Where's Fia? She left. Oh, of course she did. After the spectacle you put on tonight, I wouldn't want to celebrate you either. Gina. How dare you suggest that man be godfather of her child? That is a sacred position, and you are to treat it as such. Now eat your fucking cannoli. Welcome to Tales from Yaya's, your dedicated after-show podcast for Showtime series, Your Honor. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight, we're discussing part 15 of Your Honor. Tonight's episode was written by Kendall Sherwood and was directed by Peter Sollett. This is Kendall's first writing credit on Your Honor. Peter, though, we know. Peter is back to direct this week and will be back next week. Peter, you'll recall, directed episodes one and two of the season, parts 11 and 12, which kicked off this season, too. So this is our third episode with Peter this season. So welcome back, Peter Solid. <laughs> Just a community note, please join us on Facebook in the Showtime Your Honors TV series fan group to discuss all things Your Honor with all your favorite fans. Yeah. So many good comments on there, you guys. People get Loving fired it. up about this show. I love it. They do. It. And I'm glad. This is one of those ones where people want answers and they are willing to discuss every little nugget of it to try to figure out those answers. This episode, I think, marks a real ramp up just based on what's coming down the next couple of hours anyway. People are going to notice a big pickup in pace. For all intents and purposes, this show is done at the end of season two. There has been no word on season three as much as maybe we would all like that to happen. But I think you have to be prepared for anything and everything might happen in the final five hours of this series. So I'm excited for that, though. I'm excited for a show that if it knows it has an ending and it is coming to an end, I'm excited for that freedom that that gives the creators to just kind of go hog wild with it. Um, I'm expecting some really crazy things in the next couple hours. It's amazing. So just a reminder, we assume you've watched this episode. We're not going to go step by step recapping it. We're going to talk about the highs and lows, things we loved, things we hated, predictions, all that good stuff. But if you haven't watched, please go watch it and then come on back. I'm going to start with a quick preliminary, which really is just introduced at the end of the episode. Uh, you and I have spent a lot of time this season talking about Robin. What is Robin's story? We felt like we were we were dangled an interesting story in season one that, for whatever reason, they didn't get back around to. So the end of the season with that line from Nancy to Michael and seeing how her and Olivia maybe were working together to get him there. And we are introduced to that lower ninth perp who was arrested at the beginning of the episode. Obviously, he had some information about Michael that relates to Robin. That question of where were you on the night of your wife's murder to close out the episode and that look on Michael's face. Mm -hmm. We're getting back to Robin, which I'm excited for. Is it too late? This is the mid-season of the last season of the show. Presumably, we have to go on that we don't know otherwise the, only five hours left after tonight 
is it too late to wrap up whatever Robin's story is neatly without feeling rushed? I don't know if they can do it without it feeling rushed. I mean, I think that, as you said, the the pace of the show is going to pick up. So it's going to feel fast no matter how they handle it. I want answers. I'm willing to take it at whatever pace and however quickly they can give me all the information. So I'm good with it. And I'm glad that they aren't just going to leave that hanging out there because it was it was such a dropped plot line from season one that I just felt like, well, wait, like, I mean, this is the catalyst for the entire story. We have to get back to the root of why Adam was even down there. What happened at Yaya's? What is the tale that this podcast has been kind of dangling in front of us? Tales from Yaya's, right? So what's the tale? What happened at Yaya's? I want to know. I'm excited to circle back so people understand why we named the podcast Tales from (laughs) Yaya's. Uh, so so long ago what are you talking about who is yaya you're caroline and mike there is no yaya on this podcast and and, and, and this person does not have a tail vindication y'all yaya does have a tail and we're gonna learn about it so i can't wait let's talk about an episode theme i always like when there's an episode theme that i can kind of point to this one is a little you got you got to look for it but there is a theme in this episode of deals being reached behind other people's backs or otherwise stories Storylines being affected by other characters without that character's knowledge. Tricky. You see it with what uh, the fate of Eugene and Little Mo. That fate is really decided because Janelle interferes with Big Mo. Which I feel really good about that prediction, Mike. You made a great because call. Last on that. episode, I was like, of all the people who I think can affect the outcome for those two, it's Janelle because there's something about having this love interest be introduced to us that had to make a difference. There had to be a reason why she had to matter and like you pointed out the actress is well known and a great broadway actress so we can't just not use her and not have her affect anything so excellent use of her yeah yeah you don't bring on ciara renee she's well known enough to not have her have play some kind of role i also like how it humanizes big mo introducing janelle and introducing the grand rain and introducing this love story this romance storyline for her fleshes her out because it would be really easy for her to be a, a, a villain maybe even a corny villain, one that's just kind of sucking on her teeth and being a little one note. This really fleshes her out in the way. I think I think she's a fan favorite because she has such a good sass about her and, and a real attitude, but also like a badass. Like she will kill you and not think about it afterwards. But introducing Janelle really complicates that badassery. It does. It, it, it makes it more bifurcated. Like, you, you understand Big Mo in this episode really has to keep a wall up between her business and her personal life. My concern with this Janelle storyline, however, is that can Big Mo be an effective gang leader and have a soft heart? And allow for things like Lil Mo and Eugene and all the things that happen and not have repercussions. Like, is this going to weaken her stance in a way that other people are just going to come, you know, swooping in? Like, you can't have the leader of the pack show any vulnerability. Like, oh, so now we can get to her through Janelle. You know, like, now she has, like, a weakness. Let's listen to Janelle and Big Mo. You know who I am. And you know what I do. And we agree. You don't ask, I won't tell. He's your nephew. He's not some corner boy you took him from the streets. He is family. Mm. 
Yeah. And family could fuck up too. And when they do, we gotta handle it. Handle it how? It's my business. No, that's your blood. And if that's what family means to you, I'm not sure what we're doing here. Big Mo takes that to heart. And the next thing we see, she's giving out the, the sentences, right? This is decisions are being made for characters behind their backs. This conversation happens. And then Big Mo talks to Eugene and says, you like my sister. She's taking good care of you. You're getting on a bus going back to Houston. Little Mo, you ain't family anymore. Blood in, blood out. The henchmen in, in uh, Bufas understand that's code to whip ass. They beat the shit out of Little Mo. They dump him on the street. He's beaten. He's broken, but he's alive. She doesn't kill him. She excommunicates him. She says, you are no, you are no morrow, no more, but he's still alive. And that's because of Janelle. Does that make her look weak in the eyes of the of the henchman who she just had beat the shit out of Little Mo? Maybe the fact that he got such a dramatic beating, maybe that shores it up a little bit, right? Maybe that's the real reason know. she hasn't beat up so badly. I don't know. I worry. I worry that this is going to really create a opportunity for someone else to swoop in. And, you know, we know we have Roderick still around in theory. I did like when she said blood in, blood out. You know what's up. <laughs> Let, let's start the beginning of the episode. We always start with Michael and Michael's storyline. We always do Desire last. Tonight, goddamn it, we're going to do Desire first. I'm, I'm staying with Desire. We're going to stay with Desire. Let's go to the very beginning of the episode where we pick up on Big Mo and Eugene having a little car conversation. Oh, don't get quiet now. So you miraculous escape, not so miraculous at the all. And then little Mo hide you out in Houston with my sister of all people. Take brains down smart damn near a whole city looking for you. But you coming back now. Now I take balls. One, it was a nice summation. If you hadn't watched what happened in the last episode, she sums it up for you nicely here. I, I like this because I was worried about what was her reaction going to be, because you have every reason to kill Eugene. Eugene is supposed to be dead. This is a big risk for him to be alive and in New Orleans. So as much as she may admire him and be thankful to, to him for dropping the money back off, it would be very easy for her to kill Eugene. She already ordered it once. She wanted him dead. And there is a dead boy named Eugene buried somewhere in New Orleans. I, I'm worried about Eugene all through this episode, but I this made me breathe a little bit right this gave me a little bit of relief because she's complimenting him you know it takes brains out smart the whole city to think you're dead but it takes balls to return here so she is she is looking at him as a man here the fact that he came back with her money she's giving him the flowers he's due on being ballsy now she raises a good question here which many people whether you're in a gang or not have to always keep in mind right don't substitute big balls for big brains you have to have, try and have both of them ideally What's your takeaway on in, after this conversation? Are you breathing a little bit of sigh of relief? Do you feel a little bit better that Eugene is going to make it out of here? Or is this false flag for you? Are you are you not believing Big Mo's kind of generous word she has for, for Eugene in this scene? 
I go back to what I what I just said about like I'm concerned about showing all this compassion from Big Mo that it's it's going to cause problems. And so I don't know if she can afford this amount of compassion. I just I don't think that's how <laughs> how the Big Mo's get to where they are. You know, I don't feel great for Eugene. I don't feel great for little Mo. I mean, I'm glad that they're safe in the moment, but I don't feel great for them. I just I just don't. I think it's like bad for her street cred to have this amount of compassion for people who don't do what she says to do. You know, I don't I don't think you can get let people get away with that. Well, you know, Little Mo makes a comment. Little Mo has some great scenes with Eugene in this episode. And one of the things he says to him, because Eugene asks him about whether or not Little Mo and Kofi were friends, Kofi being Eugene's big brother. He says, were you guys friends? And Little Mo says, you can have friends and you can have soldiers, but you can't have both. And I think that's a great comment, but that applies to Big Mo too. You can have soldiers, but you can't have family at the same time, right? You can have family and you can have... You can treat them differently. Right. You can have family and you can have soldiers, but if you're going to mix them together, you can't... You can't actually have them. You have to treat them like soldiers. And she doesn't. She doesn't treat Little Mo like a soldier because if this was anyone else in her organization, he'd be bar- he'd be thrown in a river already. 100% Absolutely. hands down, no matter what Janelle said, that person would be dead. She even says, go back to the clip we just played, Janelle says, this isn't some street corner boy you took in. This is your blood. So Janelle doesn't even necessarily have a problem with Big Mo's business. Her problem is really, this is your blood that you're, you're talking about killing. You get the impression Janelle is saying, if this was just some non-Morrow, some street urchin, kill him. Right, I get it. It's your business. He fucked up. He brought a ton of heat down on you. But even Janelle is making the, the lie. Janelle is the one putting in her brain, this is your blood. You have to treat him differently. That may be a problem for Big Mo going down the road. And you can understand from Janelle's point of view, you want to think that Big Mo will treat somebody who she considers family differently because you yourself are trying to be family with her. So, I mean, we all totally get it that she's like, she's really talking about herself. She's really saying, if family doesn't mean anything, well, like, how are we in a relationship? Like, how are you treating me any differently than anyone else? You know, if family doesn't have any status. So... I get what she's saying and I get what she's doing, but from the larger standpoint of the story and and what it takes to keep a gang in line and keep everybody listening and following your instructions, I mean, I think this is a very dangerous move for her. You made the right call. There's more than I can say about you. Thanks to your over-eager-ass drug deal, I got cartel shit I got to worry about now. The deal's good. How about you explain to me how I got visited by the ghost of Christmas past? Like you said, Kofi was on me. With the rest of this family gone, I had to do right by the little man. I owed him. You owe me. And that's a debt you ain't never gonna repay. As my right-hand man, how would you advise me? There was someone who disobeyed my orders and lied to my face. That's my nephew. What the fuck I do with you now? Monique. I left in that little part because it made me laugh. Monique. 
Uh, so there's there's two fundamental disagreements between Little Mo and Big Mo in this episode. We just heard one of them. They had another one, which was the more interesting one, I think, in the beginning uh, of, of this episode that I had a clip out because of length. So they're talking in here. Little Mo is saying, I owed it to Little. I owed it to Little Man. I owed it to Eugene for what because of what happened to Kofi. And what happened to Kofi was on me. And she says, you owed me. Fuck little man, you owed me. But little Mo's not wrong, right? He's not wrong in, in all, in all forms of street cred and the way the, the whole idea of a gang works. The, the gang takes care of you. That's how mafias work. That's how gangs work. Someone goes down, the, the gang stops, steps in and takes care of you. From a point of view, little Mo is doing what kind of gang culture does. That can be okay unless the hierarchy says something different. You know, if someone up above you tells you things have to be different than that, then as much as you'd like to live up to your obligations and you'd like to do like your bro code and whatnot, you can't. Like you cannot. You still have to respect, like I said, the hierarchy of the organization. And like she said, she's the one he owed first. And then go ahead and take care of Eugene. But, you know, he really did it so totally behind her back. And yeah, I mean, taking care of to a point, but it wasn't his call to make in many ways. True. True. And she did let him sigh for it. And uh, so she did give him warning. And I think this is where you have to look at Big Mo's side of it. Before he went down to houston she said you fucked up already once that was your one time you are out of chances and the one time being letting eugene get away she put him on notice that this houston thing had to go perfectly but that brings us to our second disagreement earlier in the episode they are talking about who fucked over the cartel she, he, she says, now, because of you, you fucked over the cartel. Little Mo, I give him credit because he is chained to, uh, you know, the furniture and he is in a bad position, but he has the balls to stand up to her and say, no, you fucked over the cartel. Now, question, who is right here? Because I think Little Mo is actually right here. Whether or not Big Mo, I, Big Mo wins because Big Mo is the boss. But if you take that out of it, I think Little Mo is actually right. Yeah, I mean, because he's he's literally mid Aaron for her right. when she says pull it all back, and this is not the type of thing. There's no there's no take backs, you know, right. in drug dealing. And she should so, know that, right? Yeah, that's the thing. Like, and this is where Janelle again is important to the storyline, and what I'm saying may very well be the downfall because she basically messed up this deal with Roderick really for Janelle because she wants the club for her. You're already seeing her super compromised on the decisions that she would make in her business because of this love storyline. I am, again, very worried for her. You cannot do that. I don't think Little Mo is wrong to question what she's doing because they've stepped so far outside the comfort zone here being in Houston and doing this deal with this whole other group. What are you doing, Big Mo? He didn't steal that money and go to Houston. She literally no. gave him that money and said, you have to I do it right. told him. Right. And, and because she has no product, pro, uh, product to sell, which is going to come up in a second when we talk about her and Roderick and the new deal that they make. But she needs product. He found a guy. It's going to cost money. Roderick makes that point to her. There are no refunds in this business. And now on the phone, I think if we were to pull the clip for it, she says, did the deal go down already? Which had it gone down, maybe she's kind of like, fuck, or she has to well, go do something what else. What she do? I mean, he can't go get the duffel bag of money back. 
Right. But I mean, she's essentially asking him really the same thing in this world, whether or not you still have the duffel of money, the deal has been promised. When Roderick says to her, yeah. it was a verbal binding agreement. Verbal contracts are a real thing. And I think even more so when you're dealing with the big drug guy. <laughs> I think, yeah, completely. You know, so but bad I mean, business that's on a, her part. That's a super and, good point. When she says, is the deal already done? And she is really asking, was the money You still have the money, right? Because the deal is done. <laughs> yes. And that's the thing. Like the answer should have been like, yes, the deal is 100% done. Regardless of the fact that he has the money still with him, it's like, we cannot do this differently at this point. And I'm not in a position to try to do this deal differently at this point. So, yeah, I mean, I think she... Again, compromised, compromised. This is what we've learned in this show, though. Love makes you do really crazy shit. Uh, <laughs> for sure. Uh, so let's talk about Roderick. So Roderick uh, returns to New Orleans or comes to New Orleans. He's from Houston. And literally right behind, like real ballsy. He doesn't appreciate oh God, the way right? things are running in the lower ninth. He's literally right behind Little Mo being dropped off of the club. You see him stalking. Of course, the, the network of people who keep tabs on who is around the club alert them to Roderick is in the area. Big Mo jumps in the car. They have a discussion about where do they go from here? Because Roderick now has stepped into Big Mo's turf. Well, I think an arrangement could still be made. Money you want, great. How many product to make that money? So you want to advance? It's <laughs> not how things work. Well, you can go home empty-handed. Find another way to offload your shit. Or you could front me a key. Let me get that cash flowing again, and we can make payment arrangements to get you what you want. So, so you want an advance and installments? Child, the ball's on you. Yeah, they're bigger than you know. Promise you that. Okay. I'm paid in full, plus 25% big. 10%. 20. And you don't get an ounce of my shit until I'm paid. See, I don't know if you know this, but you ain't in a place to negotiate, so... Give us a sale. Look, you can kill me right now, but then you have to deal with my international associates. And we both know they're not too skilled in the art of negotiation. But, matame. They'll be on standby. Fifteen percent. Vig starts now. Or I send this up the chain. You just keep your ass out of New Orleans. For those uninitiated, VIG is street talk for interest. I love talking about the VIG. I deal with interest talk a lot in my everyday job, and I don't get to call it VIG because I think I'd probably be fired if I did. But in my head, in my head, I'm always thinking of it as the VIG is running. <laughs> the VIG is running, motherfuckers. So, uh, so this is a big freaking mess, though, that, that Little Mo and Big Mo and Eugene really have, like, with Roderick created in the ninth ward now i mean like we, this this is a mess this is a mess 10 seconds ago she was like rolling in cash able to buy a club all this stuff now she's into the mexican cartel she's got to pay interest she's got she's got all the oh what a mess what a mess this has become 
yeah we now i mean we have the contis return to town and whatever they're bringing to the city and now mm-hmm. we have roderick and his international drug associates now in the town and what are they're going to be bringing so all of a sudden what was just a thing between jimmy and or the baxter family and desire jimmy and big mo is has blown up has escalated and we don't even know it yet we don't even know it but it has escalated into literally an international affair in our fair little city of new orleans so it's going to be a big mess and she's made these are steep terms remember uh, Little Mo went to Houston for two kilos, two keys. Roderick was going to make him buy 20. That's why it was so expensive. 20 kilos. Now she's getting him to negotiate a one kilo advance, which is half of what Little Mo originally only originally wanted. And she can't even pay for it. She has to sell it and then pay it back in installment plans. But Roderick understands that his ass is on the line, too. So he needs this deal to go through. It, they don't make it super clear here, but Roderick and his ability to continue breathing above ground is on the line with this deal because 20 kilos represents a lot of money. Even one kilo with this kind of drug dealer represents a lot of money. And if he can't produce it, he needs this deal to work, right? And that's a little... a Big Bo understands that and and exploits that in this conversation she, she knows that roderick needs for his higher ups to show that money is moving so he is going to advance that kilo he is going to take installment payments because everyone needs money to be flowing again big mo needs product on the street so she can have money flowing again and roderick needs money flowing back up to his bosses because everyone's got a boss that's the lesson of this interaction everyone has a boss no matter how high up on the food chain you think you are you have a boss everyone has a boss Janelle is Big Mo's boss, and the unseen international drug federales are are uh, Roderick's boss. I only foresee horrible things coming out of this deal made in this car in this episode in the last four episodes. It is never a good idea to have to go through a deal like this when you had a whole other plan in place that you then let love dictate your moves and now you're having to scramble and pull something together because this is all much worse i mean so much worse right 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 because even on top of the financial situation now you're under the eye of the freaking cartel too right 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 thank you even if the financial situation wasn't dire and it is dire the company you're now keeping the people you're now in bed with the tension that you're starting you know if if he had bought the 20 kilos and it and that they had had that meat outside the barbecue joint and all had gone well we wouldn't be having this conversation because the relationship expensive as it may be would have started off on a good foot we're starting off with all of this drama you're starting off with people in prison you're starting off with the money disappearing and leaving houston you're starting off with roderick having to drive from houston to new orleans to track down his money and track down little mo you're starting this off in the worst possible way and on all fronts there is no good aspect to this how you're starting and if it's starting so poorly it's not going to get better it's only going to get worse even dysfunctional, one might say. Oh, what a segue to the Baxter family. <laughs> Let's eat some fucking cannolis, shall we? Yes. Happy birthday. Eat. I had too much uh, cake tonight. This is tradition. 
Papa? Carla? Where's Fia? She left. Oh, of course she did. After the spectacle you put on tonight, I wouldn't want to celebrate you either. Gina. How dare you suggest that man be godfather of her child? That is a sacred position, and you are to treat it as such. Now eat your fucking cannoli. I love that so, so much. You know I have that isolated, and you know you're going to hear that at least three more times. <laughs> All right, so question mark. Did you think that the cannoli was poisoned in some way, given that she doled them out so specifically to each guy? No, I didn't. But not even I, for a second you weren't <laughs> sus? No, not in the opening scene of this episode, and there's still five no. to go. But I know Jimmy thought it was. Uh, Jimmy thought it was poisoned. If you, We just played the clip of it, but go watch the visual of it he's staring at that cannoli like it is a goddamn hand grenade tapping his belly going oh i had too much cake listen those cannolis looked fucking amazing i love cannolis it is my favorite dessert there are not many things i wouldn't do to get a cannoli and those cannolis those cannolis looked a plus plus delicious so if you had no matter how much cake you had that cannoli looked good enough you're gonna jam that in your mouth unless you think it's poisoned jimmy definitely thought that cannoli was poisoned let's talk about the scene though because it's it's an interesting scene to start the episode with but most interesting maybe is the decorum with which they play Place the white coat on her, the kitchen staff. What's your takeaway from that? What do you? What was your takeaway from what that represented? Well, I mean, I know from all of the cooking shows that you and I both like to watch that they don't tend to give lay people chefs jackets. So the when when the kitchen staff put that on her, I was really kind of taken aback because would I mean it would have been more normal for them to put like an apron on her or something. But the chef's jacket, the way that it wasn't even closed up, like it wasn't even serving a purpose it just really felt like i don't know some sort of nod to perhaps she had some sort of culinary history or something or maybe when things were much more you know before they rose that rose up in the ranks or something like that maybe she was more of like a you know a cook in their own home kind of thing like maybe it was more simple times or something there was something about that that we were supposed to glean i think beyond just throw on a jacket because like she didn't need it you know in any way but they did that so i was like hmm i wonder well i like that idea because especially knowing that jimmy jimmy came up through the ranks of hustling oysters to the finest restaurants of the city i think there's a nice fanfic backstory unless the show makes it explicit for us that maybe gina was an executive chef or or otherwise a high important person in a kitchen in which he used to sell oysters and maybe that's how they met each other it is interesting how does an honest quote-unquote honest oyster scottish oyster salesman fall in with the daughter of a major mob boss both of them maybe have a connection to a restaurant and and Mm -hmm. that makes sense as you know it, it wouldn't be unlike carlo and angela the reception lady, uh, oh, you know, yes. you know, maybe maybe it was a meat cute like that, but in a kitchen instead of a instead of a concierge desk. So I, I like that. I like that take a lot. Now, it's very possible she is the owner of the hotel and maybe they're just fluffing up her ass. Maybe. But I like your idea better. I think it fills in a blank of how did these two meet? Uh, we got to talk about 
Carmine Conti, because just introduced at the end of last week's episode, he's already sticking his nose in in people's business. The morning after the birthday party, the first words out of his mouth are late start for a businessman on a work day. He's just needling at Jimmy literally from the moment the the get go. Uh, Let's play this a little bit of this breakfast conversation. I want I want your take on how Carmine is going to stick his nose in the Baxter family affairs. We were just talking about the waterfront deal. We've got to secure this lease before that mayor opens it up to other bidders. We were promised this land. I'm handling it. Are you? Yes. How? Establishing a relationship with our new mayor. Hmm? Uh, hearing him out, negotiating. We should never beg. I never do. I have built a few businesses in my time. All on your own, huh? All those city contracts you were awarded, the unions that never caused trouble, the peace and prosperity that you've enjoyed, all that was earned, but not by you. The Baxter business was built on the county name. That's right. And we shouldn't let something as silly as a politician stand in our way. What does that mean? It means if this mayor is a problem, there are ways to get a new one. We have hunted bigger game than that. Now, the obvious takeaway here is Jimmy's over here. I'm making a relationship with the mayor. I'm doing the business thing. I'm schmoozing. These two psychopaths are over here. We're just going to kill this motherfucker. We'll find a new one. We've hunted bigger game than him. They are so diametrically opposed in their business acumen. It's insane. Uh, Where's the meeting of the minds here? This is another place where you can't even imagine a middle ground for these guys. I think Gina is so sick of compromising, though, you know, so sick of this like halfway kind of biz. I mean, she's experiencing it in and on the business side. And then, of course, on the family side. I mean, I think that she feels so slighted in every part. And he really Jimmy is really making it worse and worse when it comes to his handling the baptism and the the disrespect of of the Godfather whole scene, like there's so much there where she just feels like she she is done, like trying to meet anyone in the middle. Like I want a baptism done like this, and I want it to be taken seriously. I want the business to be done like this, and I want it taken seriously. Like she's sick of this sort of mm, halfway in, halfway out kind of biz. Like no, no more. I don't blame her entirely for that. Well, let's talk about Gina on the personal side, because I think you're very right. And we talked a lot about this, about why she went to the meeting with Jimmy and the mayor last week and and her feelings on it. Though, again, we, we talked about how she muddied the waters by making it personal and talking about Big Mo and calling her, you know, the bitch from the lower ninth and, and really, you know, kind of pissed in the pool a little bit. So she doesn't want to compromise, but she's also not willing to work like a business person. She just wants to be be the blunt instrument, which is seemingly how her father also wants to be, which made the conversation inside Rocco's bedroom so interesting. She, Gina, finds her father 
in Rocco's room. He's staring at the picture. I can't go to the cemetery. I can't believe we lost the boy. They, they cry together, but then she switches to the marriage and she, she's talking to her father. She's almost like a therapist, almost like a confessor about how she feels Jimmy slipping away from her. And you and mom never fought. And Carmine's advice is interesting. It isn't leave him. It isn't he's a worthless bum who only has what he has because of the fa- my family name. His advice is squeeze harder. Hold on to him. Marriage is hard. Marriage is hard work. Your mother and I never let you see us fight because it wasn't like that back then, which is an interesting take all on its own. What's your takeaway from that conversation between Gina and Carmine? Do you appreciate Carmine's approach there? Do you appreciate Carmine saying you're like me and I see a lot of Jimmy in your mother? And, and so this idea that they married cross, that Gina is the Carmine and Jimmy is is the Mrs. Conti in the relationship. Well, when you say it like that, it kind of sounds more negative, I guess. I I was kind of taking it a little bit like she's like, like that he was trying to say to her, like, you have to have the person who is the more blunt object, the more, you know, the hammer, if you will. But you also need to have the one who's got a little more finesse or a little softer side or a little different way of approaching a situation. And I'm not, you know, by no means, let's not all look at Jimmy Baxter and start saying he has the soft side. okay? but he has a different approach. He's willing to come at things. So I thought Carmine was kind of given this yin yang and it's okay to have a yin yang. And it's and, you know, you're looking at him like he's being weak, but you're not paying attention to how harsh or edgy or sharp you're being and why he might come off that way to you you know that's how i thought he was saying like i actually didn't think he was being all that negative towards jimmy but i think you could if you say things like jimmy's mrs conti that can kind of come off a little but here's the thing though respectful towards jimmy i think he is actually giving jimmy a compliment here saying that there is a quality to jimmy that is necessary and important in the yin yang sense like you're talking about which is funny because in the limited interactions we've seen of them so far particularly this episode right we didn't really see a lot of jimmy and carmine one-on-one last week but in this episode we have a couple of instances of it he has no respect for Jimmy. He openly def- openly pans him, openly betas him. It, it really puts him down at every turn or at least questions his judgment at every turn. So it's interesting that in private with his daughter, he's saying, Jimmy is like your mother and you're like me and there's a yin-yang there and you need each other. Hold on to it. Squeeze tighter. But in front of Jimmy, he's like, you're a piece of shit. You're weak. You only have what you have because of my family name. You built every, you built everything on our backs. It's an interesting, it's very, maybe a very father-in-law-ish of you say to your daughter, he's a good guy, you know, whatever. But to the actual son-in-law, you fucking hurt my daughter. I'll kill you kind of thing. I, yeah, and I don't know. think that he's ever talking about you hurt my daughter. I don't even think no, he No, it's business for him. I don't think that he, type yeah. Of, yeah. Right. He, he wants him in his own Carmine way to, rise to the top whatever level you are willing to go in business however diabolical you're willing to act we're asking you to turn the volume up now right and go that direction whatever that looks like and even if that requires being a blunt instrument uh, the time for schmoozing is over the idea of like what he says like we need this land deal jimmy and maybe your way of schmoozing will take too long if it works at all so maybe you need a, a carmine and gina blunt object to get what you need if that requires killing the mayor and getting a new one which is 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting, interesting verbiage he uses in this conversation, only because we've talked about it already in this podcast. And I think we, it's come up in 1923 also, our 1923 podcast. He says, don't let it slip away. Squeeze tighter. You and I have had several conversations about this idea of when you squeeze so hard, you actually cause the thing to slip through your hands faster. I think it's interesting that he says, don't let Jimmy and your marriage slip through your fingers, squeeze tighter to it. That that may be double edge advice, though. That may end up causing the marriage to slip farther if she tries to hold so tight to Jimmy, depending on how she executes that. Their marriage is a tough one because I don't think Jimmy wants to go anywhere. I don't think he's looking to be out of this marriage. And it really is Gina's reactions to things that's creating a lot of the tension and making it to be where they can't seem to communicate. Jimmy seems to continuously come back to her, but she she's the one who has the one liners like, oh, well, Frankie can just take care of me kind of thing. Like, I mean, she's the one pulling that stuff. I mean, having having the advice of squeeze tighter sounds odd but if you take it like be more of a partner you know like squeeze tighter meaning form one partnership you know stop trying to run your own show like clasp onto this other person and make this partnership work there is something good here that that's stronger than you are on your own there's something there that I'm like, okay, but I agree with you that I don't like I, the concept of ever squeezing anything tighter to hang on to it feels uh, nobody likes to be squeezed that hard. <laughs> let's let's get to the Baxter family lunch at towards the end of this episode, because this is where Jimmy has had enough with everyone. He's had enough with Carmine. He's had enough with Fia. He's had enough with all of them. And he and he and he puts his foot down in maybe the most assertive family way we have seen him in this entire series takes place in this now good listeners i have spared you the slurping the soup slurping noises of carmine thank you very yes, much i did that for everyone but particularly you because i don't want to aggravate your misophonia it is horrible i listened to it unedited in my ears very loudly a couple of times and it made me want to it made me want to put myself at the bottom of a river so here's the baxter family lunch Jimmy, your family is dysfunctional. You know, I'm actually quite tired of explaining myself as well. How I run my family is my business. Not when you leverage the soul of my grandson. I was trying to bring the mayor into our world. Well, you failed. And you corrupted the spirit of the baptism. There isn't going to be a baptism. Then you have condemned your child to hell for all eternity. Save us a seat when you get there. Okay, that is enough. Your mother's faith is what keeps this family whole. When I have failed, when I have faltered, she has held us together. You are both adults, but you are our children, always. We have your best interests at heart, just like you, Fia. Have little Rocco's. And there are things we must do for ourselves, and there are things we must do for our family. We want our grandson, baptized. And I want Carlo to be godfather. Good. 
No, I edited down for time. There's about 10 seconds between when she says, I want Carl to be the Godfather and when he musters out the good. Michael Stuhlbarg just continuing to kill it with the face acting. He spends 10 seconds going through every muscle emotion his face can muster before he says good. Because he's so taken aback by that statement, by by her capitulating. He's not used to anyone in his life and his family giving in to him, but especially not the women in his life giving in to what he has said. His face does some great acting for a solid 10 seconds before he says good so uh let's let's uh, what takes on this lunch were you surprised that he comes to gina's faith defense is this something he really believes or is this him just making peace in his family because he knows he needs to make peace with gina especially given his nudge of a father-in-law being there I think he really does believe it. I mean, I the the portion of keeping the family together because of her faith. Now, again, when I'm when we're talking about the squeeze, like I think that that's a good squeeze, right? Things are falling apart. She's the one who who literally squeezes them all back together. Okay, let's just assume he's being honest about that, and that there have been times, and that somehow her faith really has gotten them through it. I'm gonna feel like that's real, and. I appreciate everything that he's saying. You and I both have kids who are teenagers, young adults. I think that we could probably take that exact recording of, you know, we have your best interest at heart. You've got to listen to us. We understand you're older, but we have our reasons too. And we're asking you to respect those things. I think that's a very reasonable request. She was tricky to, you know, to throw in this Carlo thing as if somehow that would derail it. I don't know. But it certainly does give her a little bit of control over it make her feel like she has a little bit of a say. And that's all she really wants here. She just doesn't want to be strong armed into doing something with her kiddo. She wants to feel like she's a part of it. So hopefully moving forward, they figure out a way to make this more meaningful to her, more meaningful than, you know, simply I'm doing this for my mom's faith. It has to mean something to her, I think, for her to actually do it. This is the carrot and big stick, right? Because Gina and Fia had this conversation and Gina screams at her, you don't care. It doesn't matter to you. Why won't you just do this? And Jimmy handles this in a much more diplomatic way of, listen, family, it sucks. Sometimes you got to do shit you don't want to do but it doesn't mean anything to you it means a lot to us and this is what's going to happen it's not unreasonable and that gets through the hurt now it may be the messenger i think for whatever happened in the year which we still don't know what caused fia to become anti-jimmy the most in the family when they were so tight right after adam was killed we still don't know that backstory though we have a good guest we've talked about a bunch on the show you can listen to our old podcast episodes she is more always inclined to listen to jimmy because jimmy speaks in softer words than gina who is much more blunt with her words and is much more hitting you in the face with her words and again you see that here gina said this exact same thing to fia an episode ago two episodes ago but now it gets through because it's Jimmy giving it in a way that she is receptive to the words. What do you think of Carlo being the godfather? Carlo, the guy that she said in season one, the wrong brother was kill. Carlo, douchebag and not terribly smart. But Carlo, who this season has 
been extremely supportive and kind to his sister. Whatever other faults he may have, whatever relationship he may have with his mother, whatever anger issues and and feeling of non-love he has with his father, whatever he's trying to do with Angela, the reception girl, he has been extremely kind and loving and supportive nice genuinely nice to fia this season they have a great little moment this season he calls her leah he calls her fia the lionhearted which makes her give this cute little roar is she stronger than you're stronger than all of us fia he says to her in this episode he's not being paid to be nice to her why is carlo so nice to fia this season do you think fia is carlo really the best family she has now from fia's point of view when you look at it from the standpoint of who has shown her some empathy, who has tried to actually just stand back a little bit and let her have what this year has been for her, Carlo stands out as like the one. I mean, everybody else has things they want her to do. He seems to be the only one. Now, part of that is just lucky, lucky Carlo. You know, what her choices are don't really affect him. So he doesn't have to be as invested as her parents. You know, her parents they have a lot of say and they want to exert a lot of control over her. Carlo has the luxury of being able to kind of bebop in and be a family member without really having like a horse in the race, you know, right. which good, good on him, um, you know, for, for him being able to do that and being able to have his sister in his life. I think they both really miss having Rocco too, the, the original Rocco, if you will, OG Rocco. I can imagine that siblings would want to cling a little bit more towards each other. And he really does. I mean, in previous episodes, he said she's had a really rough year. Like He said in this episode, right? You know, he has some compassion yeah. there. I, I clipped it for time because the whole lunch scene was a little long. But that scene starts with Fia and Gina getting into it. And Carlo steps into it and says, leave her alone. She's been through enough. And Jimmy, that's when Jimmy slams his thing down and says, you stay out of this. Yeah, but he said the same thing to Michael. He was like, she's had a hard year. Like, back off, that kind of stuff. Like, he, he has really you know, had his eyes opened, I think, to his family and what's going on and and what's being asked of Fia and what she's willing and able to do. There's a lot of trauma that has gone on within this group that it's interesting because as a whole, the show has treated grief and trauma and loss with such like tender, loving care. Like there's so much that has gone into trying to find the layers and express all this. And at the same time, they have very obtuse characters who don't allow the trauma and the grief and the everything to really play out without a lot of anger. Like, this is what's going on in the Baxter house. I think that the show is being really careful about Fia's grief and trauma and trying to not have her get steamrolled because they need to to show her story and what has happened. And it would be so easy to allow these really strong characters like Jimmy and Gina to just, you know, rip her apart and make her just be like a shell of a person. I'm glad she still has a voice in this group and she's willing, I think, because she's propped up by Carlo in a lot of ways. There's also a very mafia sibling thing here uh, where she could say things to him. I, we're running a little long on time, so I'm not going to play the clip, but she says to him, man, I, I, you know, I'm so sick of our parents. And, and he's just just playing along he's just like yeah we should kill him and then it turns out <laughs> to no one's surprise carlo has thought about a foolproof way to kill his parents uh oh was God. a grape candy cane uh you know through the eye lick lick to a stem and stab through the eye which will then melt on its own or icicle that's where 
was it? I don't it's remember what Candy King, but I think it's, yeah. It's I think it is, you know, but he's thought about it, which, thing. you know, a pop, that's what it is, a great popsicle through the eye, uh, lick to a stabbing point. Uh, you know, and, and, and Fia looks at him like, you thought about this? He's like, all the time. You know, so <laughs> he's, he's deranged and he's psycho, but he at least is consistently being on her side, which she needs. She needs someone on her side. So thankful for Carlo for that, which then goes a, a ways, maybe not a lot of ways, but goes away of making Carlo a complicated character, right? It's always better when a show makes a character, villain or good guy, as complicated, as a gray, right? Not only black, not only white, but give them gray. Carlo's relationship with Fia this season makes Carlo gray. Not a light gray, not a heavy gray. It's still a dark gray, because I think overall he's still a bad person. But it does give him nuance it does give him yeah, wrinkles there's and dimension there's dimension there and and i give the show credit for that they could have easily just kept making him uh, a one-minded mongrel killing machine but they didn't they they've humanized him a little bit they've given him nuance and so they've made him a little complicated uh before we leave the backstories i want to play the two clips uh, that are interesting one with michael one with charlie this is interesting because it's the jimmy that gina and carmine don't see when carmine is saying everything you have you built on the conti name it's this jimmy we're going to play here that he doesn't see at work and for civilized people who don't resort to violence to answer all their problems what jimmy is doing with michael in this episode and what he does with charlie in this episode is how you get people to come to your side it is how you appeal to them and you negotiate with them and you do get business done so i thought it was interesting to play just for balance of storytelling i want to play two clips with the jimmy that the contis don't see just leave now this concerns your friend Charlie. I had an arrangement with the previous administration, but he's considering backing out of it. I can't control that. Could be very, very dangerous for it. If I can't do this deal the way I wanted to, then other people are going to get involved. Unfortunately, people like my father-in-law, which is the last thing I want, frankly, I'm concerned. For Charlie's safety. So, uh... Perhaps there's another option. Just let him know, please. Now, I don't think he gives one rat's ass about Charlie's safety, but I do believe him when he says his father-in-law being involved is the very last thing he wants here. So smart. This is smart business. You want to convince someone to do something? Show them why it's in their best interest. Jimmy doesn't say, I want this land deal because it's going to make me rich and it's going to give me a legacy. He says, I need this deal to go through because it'll keep Charlie alive and safe. And you care about that. And I care about that. Let's be on a team together. That's not a skill everyone has. That is a skill that only some people have and are, can execute well. Jimmy has that. He executes it well here. As viewers, we can see why he really has a push-pull with Gina and her whole family, really. But Gina specifically, because she really like embodies this Conti attitude. That would be so hard, so hard to, to try to get anything done and feel like you're at odds with your own best pal, if you will, you know? Why am I playing this? Because it does work, because it does prompt Michael to go to Charlie, which we're going to we'll talk about in a second when we get to Michael, and it blows up their friendship, but it does 
put Charlie on notice that he is going to have to deal with Jimmy and maybe his life does depend on dealing with Jimmy, which then leads to this conversation between Jimmy and Charlie, which I think is some fascinating deal making. I can't make this deal. Not without some changes. Such as? I want preferred contractors, union workers, and disadvantaged business enterprises at 35% participation, minimum. It's important to you who builds this project. It's important to the people who put me here. A project this size must include black-owned businesses and livable wages. As you wish. You've also got to build more than what was in your proposal. The Baxter District needs a school, a library, a community center, and low-income housing. Well, that's a very, very long list. Sounds a bit more fitting for Santa. North Pole doesn't run without the elves. And I get the waterfront. You get to lease the waterfront. From the city. Either this development is a genuine partnership, or it's an empty plot of land. Now, that scene ends with Jimmy holding out his hand when he, after his face, does some digesting of that news and some great acting. He holds out his hand. Charlie initially looks at his hand like it is a snake viper about to bite him. He shakes it, but he is not happy about getting to bed with Jimmy. But... Jimmy is giving in to the demands, and why wouldn't he? Union, that's that's probably right in the bread and butter. The person of color ownership and involvement, that's only good PR that Jimmy understands. Now, I think this is going to go down like a fucking lead balloon with Carmine Conti and that whole side of the family. But from Jimmy's standpoint, as someone who wants to be seen as a legitimate businessman in a diverse city of New Orleans... This is a home run. You've got the city's backing. You get the city's money. You get their stamp of approval. And you get to see as like a ban of the city. You're going to, you're going to raise Baxter district. It's going to be a whole, a whole community, schools, hospitals, diverse workforce built with the people of New Orleans. It's a genius home run for Jimmy. Carmine is never going to give him credit for this. Gina is never going to see this side of it of what it took. They're only going to see they only did that because you're a Conti or you're involved with the Conti name. But this is all Jimmy, man. This is Jimmy being willing to work with Charlie. Well, and here's the thing that we know about Gina. Gina is not okay with a win-win. We discussed this so much in previous episodes. In order for her to feel like she won, someone has to suffer. Someone has to lose. And so win-win doesn't work for her. So everything that you said that's a positive, it actually comes off as a negative for her. Right. She sees that as begging, right? She calls it. Be- or we've been compromising. Around a- well, compromising is, is begging to her, right? If, right. Right. At least for this episode anyway, it ends with her telling him that he had a hell of a day. And that he is going to hell of a night. Oh, yes, my friends. Gina and Jimmy are going to get to the fucking, which it's intense. I mean, she comes on to him. This is this is the, you know, calm down, calm down. This is that scene. But now they're really going to get to do it. And we don't get to see it. Obviously, (laughs) they don't show it to us. But, you know, in my head, you can see it. It Oh, my God. Shit getting broken. Lamps are going to be lamps are going to be broken. Vases will be in pieces. Porcelain shards everywhere. Everywhere in the morning time after show situation where you guys have to listen for that one you'll have to pay for that Patreon. <laughs> 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 baxter's after dark oh my God. you're gonna get a hell
hell of a night, big boy. <laughs> oh, man. We got to talk about Michael. We got to talk about Michael had a hell of a day, and he is not having a hell of a night reward. Let's no. let's start with Michael and Charlie. Uh, let's play the clip, because I got to ask you if this, if this surprised you, because I think it definitely surprised me a little bit. What are you not telling me? I am part of a federal investigation into the Baxter organization. That's why they let you out of prison? Yes. And you just let me in on this now? I was trying to protect you. From the feds who could prosecute me or the monster who could kill me? Both. I told her that you got rid of the car. What? God damn it, Michael. What? Are you fucking kidding me? I, I was... I was in shock. I wasn't thinking clearly. I'm, I'm sorry. To hell with your apology. This keeps happening. You ask me to disappear, car. I'm covering up a killing. You invite me to a party, I'm mixed up with mobsters who could murder me. My greatest liability in life is you. I'm trying to help. You're the last person whose help I'd ever want. Get the fuck out of here. Fuck me. I added that a little bit. This was our worst fear, right? That this was, this was the worst fear of if Michael was to tell Charlie, what would it do to their friendship? This feels like, this feels like a, a shattering of a friendship in an ir- irreparable way. It was so too little too late. I mean, you know, I, when he I says, I'm sorry. It. Oh, Jesus, uh, Michael. I mean, I really, really appreciate Charlie saying, I can't believe you're just telling me this now. Like, it's true. It's true. They've had so many conversations this season. This is all Charlie could do. He point blank asked him at at uh, Senator Grandma's dinner table. Do I have anything to be worried about that Jimmy can use to scare me? On top of when they were sitting out behind and cut meats when he says, I know you, the only two people who could, you know, screw me are, are you and me. And I know you would protect me. I know you went to jail to protect me. You know, <sighs> Charlie. This is Charlie's worst nightmare come true. But Michael is so impotent when he says the I'm sorry line. Bro, that is not good enough for what you're confessing here. You needed to. If you're here giving this speech and coming clean, you really should have thought of something better to say as a as a defense or at least an apology, which asks the beg, begs the bigger question. Are you surprised that he is here confessing all this was there a way that maybe he could have expressed jimmy's warning about going along with the deal without emptying the entire laundry bag onto the floor no not at not at this point i think at this point of our series halfway through the season the second season no i think i think it's time there's there's no more dicking around like it's time it's time that he was honest with charlie it's time that whatever was going to happen needs to start happening and i don't actually think their friendship is over i i mean charlie deserved to be absolutely rip shit but these two guys seem like they're actually going to be okay ultimately Mm. to me you think it's over 
I don't know. Well, maybe, maybe they get back. And I see that impulse. These two have been through it since they were little kids, right? Single digit age, little kids, they have known each other. And that's, that's hard to wake. Six. That's hard to walk away from no matter what one of the other does. But when Charlie says, my greatest liability in life is you, quote, my greatest liability in life is you. That's a damning sentence to be said and to be heard. If Michael is awake laying in bed tonight after this conversation, that's the phrase I have to imagine is the one he is stuck on. My greatest liability. Think about the life that Charlie leads. Think about the shit Charlie has done. And he's saying here, my greatest liability in life is you. That's pretty fucking I mean, I harsh. know it's harsh to say. I know it's harsh to say. But the reality is it's true. I mean, he is this he is the one that he has bent over backwards for. He's compromised his values for. He has done everything he could possibly do to make things work out for him. In any other part of his his life, you know, he's killing it. You know, he won the mayor, you know, role. He, he, he's there now. He's he's doing his thing. It's fact, you know, Michael and the fact that he is such a, you know, a soft heart for Michael. Yeah, it's true. It's not as mean as it sounds. Like, I know when you when you hear it, it sounds so stinging. But in another way, you could look at it by saying, you're my only vulnerable spot, my weak spot, because I fucking love you, because I care about you so much. You are my weakness. That's the same word as liability in many ways, but it sounds like so ugly when you say it, you know, like your whole you, you're my biggest liability, but you're also my greatest weakness. You're the one that I would do anything for. Right. And and at some point, maybe Charlie does reflect on what Michael said here. I was trying to protect you, which Michael honestly was. I mean, Nancy, Nancy struck while Michael was in a vulnerable state. So I don't know how much you could actually hold against him there, other than the fact that he waited this long to tell Charlie about it. But when he says, I'm trying to protect you, Charlie will, when he thinks back on it, will know that is true. And when he says, you're trying to protect me from being arrested in the federal investigation or about the mobs are trying to kill me, and he says both, Charlie will also reflect on that being true, because that really is Michael's motivation. And Charlie doesn't get to watch the show like we do, like an omnipotent, you know, watcher of things. But we know Michael is only out of prison and not dead. Michael is only breathing, yes, because of the baby. But the initial reason for him to keep going on solely, that was Olivia's entire leverage, was Charlie. That was it. That was what got him to play ball when she came to him the second time inside the prison was playing the confession of outing Charlie. It was to protect Charlie. He would otherwise have tried to continue killing himself inside a prison if not for Charlie. Hopefully, Charlie does reflect on that when he cools down and thinks about it. Now, we have to get to the end of the episode because Charlie has that conversation with Jimmy. They reach a deal, the reluctant handshake. Jimmy leaves the office. Charlie calls Olivia. Did that shock you that they were in cahoots together? Shock me? No, I don't think shock me. But um, uh, Olivia is a weird wild card. Okay, so I can't be shocked about anything she's doing. But this character is a little bit driving me crazy. I'll be honest with you. The way that this this is popped up like this, it feels like. But she seemed so 
ineffectual and in, in, in all the all this time so then suddenly for her to be like hooked in with charlie you're like mm-hmm. well but but you're assuming that it's olivia reaching out to charlie i see i assume charlie knowing what he knows reaches out to olivia i'm not i didn't actually come down either way on that like who reached out to who it's such a slam dunk move for a character that didn't seem to be this good in any way so even though charlie comes in and and let's say charlie does go to olivia and let's it's like it's like i just didn't see that clicking together you know because she doesn't seem to have anything clicking together but some people just step in shit though and get lucky right because then i'm gonna go with the steps and shit because (laughs) because think back to focus on less olivia getting the slam dunk and focus more on charlie being the orchestrator here because he hangs up the phone with olivia and his campaign officer you know is worried obviously and 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 understandably about this whole situation. And Charlie says to him, it's a win-win situation. Charlie loves the win-win situations because either Olivia succeeds and takes down the Baxters. Great for Charlie gets him out of his hair or she fails. The Baxters win and the Baxters develop the waterfront also win-win for Charlie as the mayor of the people city. Charlie is a survivor. Charlie said he's, he ends that sentence with a, with the campaign manager you know, and I live to fight another day. That's Charlie's entire thing. Charlie always finds a way through. He I just didn't he, want it to work out for Olivia, Mike. That's what I'm saying. Like, I want it to work for Charlie. But maybe Olivia winds up dead with a bullet in her head, but Charlie still wins because the Baxters <laughs> developed the waterfront. That's the point. Charlie okay. is going to walk out of this okay either way. Very, very true. Very Probably. True. Probably going to walk out of it fine either way. I sure hope so. He better. How weird that we're so invested in him and less in Michael. Well, because Michael is just a husk, right? I mean, Michael is largely just a husk. This episode is the most life that Michael has had. And the life he's showing in this episode is just disgust and being the most over a person could be over something with Olivia. The way she keeps showing, she shows up to, to Grand Senator Grandma's house twice in this episode. Both times he sighs when he hears her knocking goes to the door and unlocks it, but doesn't open it. It's such a passive-aggressive flex, but it made me laugh hysterically both times. I will unlock this door because I have to let you in, but I will not fucking open it for you. I will unlock it and walk away from it. It's such a petty (laughs) thing, but it made me laugh. And I was like, yeah, Michael, I totally get it. No, it was pretty awesome, actually. (laughs) I totally get it. But let's talk about Olivia, though, because Olivia, I said the episode theme at the beginning of this was deals being reached behind people's back. We talked about Janelle and Big Mo and the way it affected Eugene and Little Mo's futures. But now we have Charlie working with Olivia behind Michael's back, which will maybe have some say in whether or not Michael stays out of prison. Because if if Olivia has Charlie to get to the Baxters and all of that entails via the Rico uh, act statute that she's leaning on in this episode or looks like what her game plan is going to be, then she doesn't need Michael. So Charlie and Olivia working behind Michael's back and coming to a deal is affecting Michael's future. But you also have Olivia working with Nancy behind Michael's back, which also is going to affect Michael's future. Because as wonderful petty as Michael is in this episode to Olivia, she's still the assistant U.S. attorney in this district. She still has the green light, presumably, to be working this case. And she buddies up with Nancy, who has something now on Michael. She calls Olivia to her office, 
She hands her the folder that we don't get to see the contents of. But the line is, this is how we get to him. Why is that important? Because think back to the firing range. You're not looking at the big picture. Right. The release one criminal to catch another. No. To catch a dozen more. A hundred more. Let me explain this to you. The Baxters are New Orleans, but they connect to crime families all up and down the East Coast. Right. And you're from the Southern District of New York, right? So I'm guessing that this transfer was a demotion. I get it. You know, you're coming off of a loss and New Orleans feels small to you. Well, it's true, right? There are a lot of things that are true. It's also true that you are not really known for your ability to close cases, but I don't have the time or the patience to go there. Okay. I had Michael Desiato's conviction in hand until you stepped in. You got a confession from a man who was in shock and just lost everything. Okay, this is an interesting tactic considering I know you want something from me. I do. I need help with Michael. (laughs) No, sorry. He's yours. You can deal with him now. So the issue is I am having difficulty motivating him. Well, of course you are. He's selfish and he doesn't care. You can't motivate him. So what are you saying? I have to motivate you to help me try? We both want the same things, right? I don't have any clue what you want. Fast forward, that's episode three of this season. Fast forward to this episode. She hands him, she hands Olivia the folder. Nancy says, this is how we get him. So through all of this, even as reluctant as she is in that firing range conversation, as standoffish as she is, remember, she stops Michael in episode two. Once your guardian angel disappears, I'll be the next thing you see. That's prophecy, as it turns out, because that's what happens in this episode. Nancy is working with Olivia This is how we get Michael. So when she says, where were you on the night of your wife's murder? Is she really now looking at Michael as a suspect? Or is this how they're motivating Michael to play ball? I blew your mind. (laughs) Well, I'm thinking about this and these ladies. Olivia needed help at the end of the day. There was no way she was going to get anything done. I mean, the fact that she's now tapped into Charlie and Nancy and really kind of tethering us back to season one and the characters who really, I think, like held down the fort while our other characters were kind of running all around. Without these connections, Olivia's storyline is nothing to me. I mean, I guess I'm very grateful that they are pairing the two of them up because Nancy has always been strong. And she she is the one who I think knows the situation in a way that could actually get something done. Is that fair? A hundred percent. I I much I am going to have a lot more faith in a Nancy plan and a Charlie plan than I will have in an Olivia plan. Olivia not great at her job, but she does understand people. She demonstrates it in a great throwaway line at the beginning of the of this episode, where she has come to Senator Grandma's house. Michael is giving her the details in his very passive aggressive kind of way about what happened the night before. She she loses the thread, right? Because she, all she's focused on is that Car- uh, Carmine is back in town. She brings, she says, that's some Elliot Ness shit, bringing him down. She's already seeing the headlines of her being successful, right? She's talking about using the RICO Act, and the, which is how federal prosecutors have brought down the mafia for 40 years now. Uh, but at the end of it, she says, Michael, 
Michael, tell me, Michael, weren't you a little relieved when he put that gun to your head? She fucking gets it. She knows who Michael is. That's that's the one thing Olivia is good at. She really does understand people and what motivates them. She's horrible at details. She's not very good at her job. Otherwise, she she puts her targets in life dangerous situations like mm-hmm. bugging them when they're bound to be searched. But she understands who they are. She knows. She she only You're says You're giving that- her too much goddamn credit. You're giving her too much goddamn credit. Michael barely even talks to her. Like, she doesn't, she but doesn't yet have she control un- but, of this situation. But she understands that there was relief that he did put his head to that barrel. And yeah, there's a part well, of him. Big deal. Well, I mean, but that's important no, to too show, much credit. though. You're giving her way too much credit. She is grasping at straws. Those straws are called Charlie and Nancy. And that is the only reason why she's getting anything done. If you need proof of her grasping at straws, look at the very beginning of the episode when Michael is doing his horrible walk of shame home from the party, and he looks at his phone, his government-issued phone, the bestie texts. They're just they're, they're, it's just constant text from her over the course of the night because he hasn't gotten back to her, and read them. They degenerate, basically, into her just beginning to threaten just him. Screaming. Just, just screaming. Just screaming via text. Uh, threatening him to send him back to prison, call me now, Michael, you know, just Text us, and it literally forces him to throw the phone on the ground Can in I the middle of the French Quarter. That, that series of text messages made me humiliated for her because it was it was so impotent. I mean, the the more and more and more that she kept doing it, I was like, I, I like I, I I like put my head down. Like I was like, you're embarrassing yourself. Like I cannot believe that this is the way this is working out for you blah with this whole storyline of olivia like she's just such a strange add to the show and at the end of the day like i really thought that rosie perez was going to be bringing all of this fieriness and to kind of like dumb it down to a series of text messages just whining at him but doesn't that, I mean, that creates this character, though, of someone who is fiery, but also completely ineffectual. Big, but wow. I mean, that that was established episodes ago. Well, she's she definitely grasping. But then but then she steps in shit. And now she's got Nancy and now mm-hmm. she's got Charlie. Two people yep. who are, are going to be much more motivated, right? Because they have their own self-interest. Michael has no self-interest, really. The only thing interesting him was protecting Charlie, which he says, I protected charlie and then that's what causes him to take a stand and say i'm done working with you you know i'm not going to be your puppet anymore and that's when she texts nancy and nancy comes in and arrests him right michael spends a lot of this episode kind of saying farewells he goes to fia he says i can't see you anymore he says having me in your life won't make any either anything easier for you i'm sorry and she has to leave because he will not engage with her. I think Michael really is sorry. I think that's the only thing that I think I think what happens with Charlie makes him sad. But I think this idea that he's not going to have Fia and the baby, who in these few short episodes, I think he has come to have a bond with. He's cutting them off for their own good. But I think he's expecting either to be killed or be sent back to prison. He goes to Otis. This broke my heart a little bit. He goes to Otis and says, I don't think I have two weeks left because he's he's getting he's quitting, essentially. And Otis is like, you're not giving me two weeks. He says, I don't think I have two weeks left. That's an ominous, ominous statement. I don't think I have two weeks left. I mean, yeah. whoa. That definitely made me 
you know, kind of clutch my pearls for a minute and be like, oh, man. So he's saying his goodbyes. That's really harsh. He's giving his goodbyes to Otis. He's cutting off Fia. He's cutting off Charlie. He's he's ending all of the ties that had tethered him to life. He's severing all of them for their own good. I was trying to save you, he says to Charlie. Your life won't be better off with me in it. I'm sorry, he says to Fia. Otis, I, I don't think I have two weeks left. I can't be your meat boy anymore. He cuts ties. These are the three best relationships he has in his life right now charlie fia and the baby and otis i mean that's it he doesn't have and he's saying goodbye to all of them because he doesn't think he has even two weeks left yet now because he before he goes to prison or before he's killed or whatever michael's life is essentially over and he doesn't think he has more than two weeks left whatever that looks like that's blood from a stone olivia's not gonna get charlie has a lot of self-interest he needs this to keep going because he needs to stay alive he needs to stay being the mayor nancy needs to get to the bottom of robin needs to get her pound of flesh from michael so she's got self-interest to work with olivia so olivia stepped in shit because she found two people she could sink her teeth into or coattails to ride on who need to keep going forward they're not ready to throw it in michael done done and dusted so far it looks like yeah predictions for next week man i don't know i i mean i I think we get some senator grandma i missed her this week Uh, yeah this is the third episode now without senator grandma in it every time i go to do these notes i say nope no senator grandma this uh this week but can i can i give you a little spoiler for next week, Caroline? No, not really. <laughs> All right. What? Senator Grandma's back next week. Okay. Don't tell anyone. Don't. I'm not going to say any more than that, but she's back. This is so. just between me and you. Yes. And our <laughs> thousands of listeners who write very nice things <laughs> at us and leave us some wonderful messages. We thank you for that. Uh, no, uh, predictions. I mean, I think Carmine, uh, Jimmy has to, I mean, he's getting, he's riding the Gina train tonight, but tomorrow morning, he's gonna have to tell the deal he made to his father-in-law. And I don't think Carmine Conti is going to take wonderfully to having to work with the the persons of color and the mandated diverse workforce i have a feeling carmine's gonna have a problem with that i don't think the negotiated terms that jimmy had uh, reached with with charlie i think they're good business terms i don't know that they're going to be good mafia terms so i think that's good that's my one prediction is that is going to be a new source of conflict between jimmy and his father-in-law Okay, and I am going to go back to the De- Desire crew and and say that I have real concerns about what is going to happen with Little Mo, Eugene, Big Mo. If if everything is going to end up being really exposed as maybe Big Mo doesn't have control of the crew anymore, what's going to go on with all of that? I don't know, but it feels ready to dismantle that whole situation like it really it 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 feels fragile you know that she has any control over the situation so i'm looking forward to seeing what happens with that this is caroline and this is mike thank you for listening to tales from yaya's your dedicated after show podcast for showtime's your honor if you wouldn't mind heading over to apple Podcasts, spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate review and subscribe to the show and while you're there if you could leave us a five-star rating we'd really appreciate it we're gonna make you cannoli and you know what you're gonna do then Now eat your fucking cannoli. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. 
Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.